The scripture this morning is Acts 1, uh, verses 1 to 11, and you can find that on page 1077 in your pew Bible. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word we've heard. And we pray that you would now, through your Holy Spirit, speak. Jesus, reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, move among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, we are part of and this is no understatement, we are part of the most dynamic movement in this world. You've got to know that. It is a movement of God in history. It's a movement that spans the whole globe, that crosses culture. It is a movement of God that has over 200 billion people who look to Jesus and claim Jesus as their Lord. It is a movement that has shaped our world in profound ways. It has, it has informed education and shaped medicine, it has defined cultures, it had provided the foundation for our modern law, for freedom, for human dignity and human rights. It has, it has just changed the personal narratives and the personal destinies of billions of people. All of which ought to make you wonder about the origins of this movement of God. Where and how did this sort of world-changing power get released into this world. And the unlikely origins of this movement is that it all started with a very small group of very ordinary men and women gathered in Jerusalem, obedient to Jesus' final words, waiting, waiting for God to move. Waiting 
oh man, we hate to wait, don't we? We wait for subways, we wait for store lineups, we wait in doctor's offices way too long, we wait in so much traffic, we wait for slow Wi-Fi service, we wait and it drives us crazy, which often leads us then to, to jump ahead and to work on the very things we are waiting for. We strive after those things. It's sort of the instincts that we usually run with. To, to, to not wait, but just to race ahead. But then we realize there are some things that you simply cannot hurry. Some things for which you can only wait. And the origins of this Christian worldwide movement are found in that posture. Ordinary people waiting. Not passively, prayerfully expectant, but still waiting which is only appropriate because the birth, the growth, the impact of the church, it's not a human creation. It is always and always will be the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. So welcome to a new teaching series here at Knox, which is on the book of Acts. It is a book that is often called the Acts of the Apostles. You probably know it by that term. That's Sort of right there, but not quite accurate. A a, a better, more accurate, but really cumbersome title is this. It is the acts of the risen Jesus through the church in the power of the Spirit. Not quite catchy, I know, but that is the accurate title for this church. Acts is the ongoing story of Jesus Christ through his church. And the deep hope, the deep expectation as we walk through the book of Acts is that the Spirit of God would once again move among us, would change our lives, would change our city, would send us freshly on this mission of God in the world. And so we are praying, God, as you moved in that early church, would you move among us again today? Lord, we have heard of your fame. Lord, we stand in awe of all the deeds you have done in the past. Do it again, God. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. Pour out your power on your church so that it shines with the beauty of Jesus, so that it would demonstrate the continuing ministry of Jesus in this post-Christian, post-modern, multicultural, hyper-connected, yet so fragmented world. God, do that. And even as we offer that hope and that prayer, as we engage the book of Acts, we need to nail down a vital matter about Acts at the front end. Acts, if you read it, you'll find out Acts is history. Acts is a historical book. The book of Luke and the book of Acts actually are two volumes that are meant to be together. They are two volumes of a single historical account of the life and ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's written to someone named Theophilus. His name means one who loves God. He's likely a Roman official or someone with some power or prestige or wealth. He's called the most excellent Theophilus. So it's sort of an honorific title. Um, And Theophilus is either a brand new Christian or he's someone seeking. He's someone investigating Christianity. And Luke's goal in Luke and Acts is to explain, to instruct Theophilus about the events of Jesus Christ. And this is 
really important for us just to sort of pause right there because Luke is addressing all of us too so that we might understand the truth of Jesus. And so as we engage in this, ask yourself, will we journey together and ask ourselves, is this true of which Luke speaks? Or do you dismiss it as, I don't know, the stuff of make-believe? Acts is history. And in the beginning of this two-word volume, in the Gospel of Luke, the author, Dr. Luke, and he's a medical doctor, he's a medically trained doctor, he states his purpose in the very beginning of the book of Luke. And he says this, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. So Luke is writing history. It's, a, it's an orderly, researched, investigative account into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He went to the eyewitnesses. He interviewed them. He wrote his account of the life and the church of Jesus, which means you can trust this account. It's not legend. It's not fabrication. It's a careful historical investigation into Jesus, into the movement that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus spawned and gave birth to. And because it's history... Many Christians have, have loved to read Acts, but have, have tended to read it only as history. But Acts is not just history. If you look at the very ending of the book of Acts, it's a strange ending. It's sort of open. It's an abrupt ending. It's not really an ending, actually. It's rather an invitation for us to take to step into that continuing story, to take our place in this story of Acts. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this about Acts. He says, what we are reading in the, is the opening scene or a set of scenes in a play whose action we ourselves are called to continue. Acts is not just history. It is our story. The work of Jesus Christ has been completed. The finished work of the atonement in the cross and resurrection are completed, and yet that end was just a beginning. Acts narrates the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in the world, but now through his church. Jesus ascended to heaven, and now it is through his church in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our story, church. And so, get prepared for an exciting ride through the book of Acts because it is going to provide a healthy jolt to our Western worldview. It is going to provoke some really important questions about our experiences of God. It's going to push our established views of church. It is going to move us more deeply into God's mission. And, and Acts engages so many important matters that we wrestle with. It, it, we're going to talk about the person and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God. What is that about? About what is the nature of salvation? What does it mean for us to be as a church, as a community, a family? We're going to see also how the church dealt with ethnic diversities. Is that a problem in our world? Yeah. That how the church handled pluralism, how they handled and lived among other religions and diverse sexual worldviews, how they handled suffering and hardship as part of the life of faith. And all of that, our hope is that it will awaken a, a fresh sense of expectation for what God might do again through his spirit-moved, spirit-empowered church. But it all begins with Jesus appearing to his disciples. It's following the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus appears to his disciples. And we read in Acts, after suffering 
He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And I find that such a, I don't know, peculiar phrase, many convincing proofs. You'd think, right? You'd think that after having watched Jesus died and know that he spent three days in the tomb and that you're talking with that man, that would be enough, right? But no, they needed many convincing proofs. Again, which is important to underscore and highlight. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not hazy legend. It is not misguided delusion. The Christian movement is grounded in the evidenced historical reality of Jesus. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he lives today. And remember again, Luke is a medical doctor. He's not pawning secondhand rumor. He's not passing off superstition here. He's laid out as a trained doctor, a researched account about the historical events of Jesus. And so if you haven't wrestled or resolved that issue, can I urge you to investigate that thoroughly? We are, as a staff, are happy to speak with you. We have the Alpha course, which has been mentioned. I encourage you to get on Alpha, to use that as an opportunity to explore um, and your questions and to do the necessary investigation. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then atheism has an answer. If Jesus rose from the dead, then your doubts and your questions have an intellectually credible resolution to them. Then your fears have the greatest comfort because death, which all of us are going to face, the stats are very, very clear on that. All of us are going to face, death doesn't get the last word because of the resurrection. And so after proving who he was, the risen Lord Jesus, after teaching them about God's kingdom, and before he leaves, Jesus gives a command. And so we read that they're eating. Fascinating moment. Here's Jesus who walks through walls, eating with them. Where's the food going? It's a, it's a bodily Jesus. After they're eating together, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait for the gifts. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Now think of what is promised here. That same Spirit of God that hovered over creation, that was the creative force of God in the formation of this world, that same presence that, that filled the pillar of cloud and fire that guided God's people through the desert, that same presence that met Moses, encountered Moses in that burning bush, that same glory and presence that filled the temple of God, that same power that came upon Mary that, that conceived Jesus, the Son of God, in her womb, the same power that came upon Jesus that empowered him throughout his ministry, that same Spirit is promised to the church, to you. So wait for it, Jesus says. Watch for it. You will be plunged. You will be immersed. That's really the word, meaning of the word baptized. You will be just plunged, covered over, soaked with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the church, there's been a lot of confusion 
about what Jesus is talking about, about that phrase, baptism with the Holy Spirit. Some have understood that to be um, sort of what some have called a second blessing or a second baptism after being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we saw three people last Sunday. Some have talked about this experience of being baptized with a new power from the Holy Spirit. But that, that, that's misunderstanding Jesus' words here, because throughout the Bible, baptism refers to the work of God in repentance, the entrance of someone into the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of sins, and the reception of the Holy Spirit. It is, baptism has always been the mark of, of a new birth where the Spirit of God joins with the spirit of a man or a woman and, and creates a new life, a new birth, a new creation. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them, which is why Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So what Jesus is promising here is the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that which became possible on the day of Pentecost. Nowhere after Pentecost, interestingly, do you see Christians baptized in the Spirit. Because it is, it is that moment when the Spirit creates the new life. This is what Jesus is referring to. Now, that doesn't mean Christians, there aren't recounts of Christians, being filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. That's the language, being filled. But it's not a baptism. The promise Jesus is making here is for all who repent and believe that the Spirit of Jesus himself will reside in them. But again, that doesn't rule out the power of God moving in us through his spirit. Because Jesus, in fact, later in this passage, promises that very power. We see Jesus poured out upon the church, and we are to continue to go on being filled with the spirit. Ephesians talks about that. It says, be filled with the spirit, and that is an ongoing, continuous verb. It's like as if we leak, and so we need to continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit is a vital reality. We want to affirm. We want to celebrate. We want to embrace. Because for so long, for too long, the Holy Spirit has been ignored or sometimes misunderstood or sometimes just resisted in the church. And it's a tragic part of, of too many Christians' lives that we've been satisfied with a low-level spirituality and we've avoided the experience of the fullness of God's Spirit. God wishes to release His Spirit in fullness on the church. The Spirit lives in all Christians, absolutely, and yet God continues to release the fullness, the power of His Spirit for ministry, and that is available to all Christians. And so Jesus says, wait for the gift. Jesus tells His disciples. But it's interesting, throughout this passage, you see the disciples getting it wrong in various ways. Um, First, you see the disciples, they're, they're looking for a territorial kingdom. They're, they're hearing Jesus, but they're thinking, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, aren't you? They're thinking of political nationalism. Maybe in contemporary terminology, it would probably go this way. Lord, are you going to make Israel great again? Lord, is it time for Israel first? They got it wrong. And then later on in the account, as Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples are left gazing up to heaven. They're just staring. Maybe they're wondering about heaven, about where Jesus is. And when Jesus has already sent them to go into the earth, 
They're gazing up, wondering about heaven, where Jesus has gone, but Jesus has sent them to this lost world. I think both of those are, are, are easy mistakes we're led towards, either hoping for political power or cultural influence, or, or left speculating about heaven and neglecting our call here on earth. But Jesus corrects them. And he said, it's not for you to know the times, the dates. My father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. You will. That is a promise from Jesus. Power is not an option package to the Christian life. Experiencing and exercising this power is vital. It's central to following Jesus. But what sort of power is Jesus talking about? Much of the time when we talk about power in our society, in our culture, we often think of power that that is bestowed upon us or power that is borrowed. It's power that we gain from either a position that we hold from a job that we've come into, from being elected, because when one wants to get elected or appointed, you, you, you gain a certain power. It's a power that can be granted to you for a period of time, but then it can be taken away. All power in our societies we think about is borrowed, it's bestowed, it's derived from something else. But this is not the power Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a power, a dynamic, a charismatic power that wells up within you and that cannot be taken away. It is a power that, that pushes you out, that transforms you from someone who might be just studying and learning about Jesus to, to being someone who is sent by Jesus, an ambassador of Jesus, a witness for Jesus. And look at who Jesus gives his power to. I love this to his ordinary followers, to ordinary people. Galilean fishermen. Galilean fishermen were, were known to speak with such a heavy accent that they were just sort of dismissed. It's what a Canadian would probably call a newfie. Um, Galilean fishermen, these backwoods fishermen. To, to women who had no voice in their society, he grants them power to sinners. These are the people that Jesus gladly clothes with power. And that power comes with a purpose, with an agenda. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Because in between the resurrection of Jesus and, and his ascension and Jesus' return, our call, our role is to be witnesses. Jesus doesn't call us to change the world. He doesn't call us to convert nations. That's his work. Our role is simply to be living witnesses. In the words we speak, in the way we live, we are pointing to the presence of the living Jesus. This is the enduring call for the church, for you and for me. The final command, those are the final words of Jesus he speaks on this earth. That final command is our first priority. Jesus does not leave us empty-handed for that task. And so he promises power. 
There's a beautiful image that Dr. Luke uses at the end of the book of Luke. In Luke 24, verse 49, he says, he quotes Jesus saying, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power. I will give you a wardrobe that is not of your own, Jesus says. I will clothe you and you will have all that you need to tell good news, to be witnesses in your work, in your neighborhood, with your friends and family. This, that, that charismatic power was released upon God's people, clothed God's people, and so moved them to live and witness in ways that utterly changed the world. In the third century, God clothed a young mother named Perpetua. She was still feeding her child in a Roman prison because of her faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that she boldly clung to and confessed even when she was finally thrown to the wild animals in the Roman Colosseum and she was finally struck down by the sword of a Roman gladiator. Who could do that? Only someone clothed with the power of God. And then in the 13th century, A wealthy young man named Francis, the son of a wealthy merchant, was brought before the bishop, dragged there by his father, his father hoping that the bishop would speak some sense into Francis because Francis was taking the family wealth and giving it away to the poor, to the church. And before the bishop, Francis realized his call and realized his only clothes that he had still belonged to his father, and so he stripped naked there gave his, the only thing back to his father, but now was clothed with power. And Francis lived a life of serving the poor and preaching the gospel and started a movement that changed the world. Who does that? Only an ordinary person clothed with the power of the Spirit. In the 5th century, a young British boy named Patricius, we know him as Patrick, was carried away from Britain to Ireland, where he was a slave for many years. He escaped, and as his faith grew in him, Patrick returned to those people who enslaved him. And now, clothed with power, he returned and became a missionary to Ireland, setting up monasteries that trained up and sent out people across Ireland who changed the culture of that place, bringing the good news of Jesus. And then think of last week. Three women... God clothed with power, Romina and Lux and Jessica, who stood right here and gave witness to the risen Jesus in their life. And I don't know about you, those testimonies, there was some power in them, wasn't there? There was some beauty in that. And none of these people had a power bestowed on them, given to them by privilege or position or status. It was a power that emerged from within them that came only from the Spirit of God. And now we come to you. And now we come to your moment in God's story. We come to our moment, church, and to our call to take up the gospel and to be living witnesses to Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth or your little corner of the earth, wherever that is. But how will we do this? How can we receive the same charismatic power? You know how we do it? We do it in the same way that those first disciples did it. First thing they did 
they obeyed the commands of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Now you might think, sure, fair enough. Jerusalem for them was a dangerous place. This was not smart. Rumors were swirling. Romans were on full alert. Authorities were looking to eradicate this troublesome band of Jesus followers. Staying in Jerusalem did not make sense at all. So stay and just wait? Shouldn't they be doing something? Shouldn't we mount some public relations plan here, Jesus? Shouldn't we write up an account of all the events? Shouldn't we defend our cause? No, they stayed. They waited because this is what Jesus told them to do. That, that simple obedience is so instructive. Are we walking in obedience to the living Jesus? Have you heard the teachings of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus, and are you obeying it? Is there some area of his teaching, of his life, of his way that you think, oh, that's too challenging, that's too hard? Is there something that you think, this really doesn't make sense in our cultural context? Obedience, it's a precursor to receiving this power. But then secondly, they obeyed, they devoted themselves to prayer. We read in verse 12, then the apostles, this is after Jesus ascended, they returned to Jerusalem, and when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the, with his brothers. They went to that upper room. Maybe it was the same upper room where they had that last supper with Jesus. I don't know, but they went to an upper room. They devoted themselves to prayer. We all have an upper room, that place where you devote yourself to God in prayer. Keep going back to that place. Devote yourself to prayer, to committed, consistent, regular communion with God, because that's what prayer is. It is communion with God. It is keeping with company with God and know that the company is so good. The release of God's power comes with disciples' obedient waiting and with their devoted prayer. Devote yourself to prayer because you can't do this on your own. We cannot do this. Not by our power, not by our good plans or strategies, not with our resources, but only and always by the power of the Spirit of God. Any pride that we have, any self-sufficiency is just going to be the death knell to our God's calling us. If we hope to continue to see the acts of the risen Jesus in his church, if we hope to continue to see his church grow, continue to see God's people brought into God's kingdom of light, we need power. We need a wardrobe that is not our own. We need such a move of the Spirit, and all we can do is ask for it. All those people in that upper room you know, they knew Jesus far better than we ever will know. Think of Peter. Think of Peter who, who was lovingly welcomed back by Jesus and then recommissioned. Think of Thomas who saw the scars and believed. If Mary, the mother of Jesus, if the brothers of Jesus, if all these needed to be devoted to prayer, you bet we need to, right? The global movement through which God has changed and continues to change the world 
It didn't start with well-planned programs or positions of cultural influence or all the resources that needed. It started with a group of ragtag, ordinary people who waited and prayed until it happened. How else are we going to find that charismatic power to fulfill our mission today? There is no other way. And so I want to call us as a church to a season of devoted prayer for God's empowering presence among us, for his presence and power to flow in this church, in this city. Pentecost Sunday, it's coming six weeks from now. In those six weeks, for the next six weeks, can we as a church devote ourselves to prayer, to join together with your friends, with your family, in your homes, in your home churches, asking the Father, come, Holy Spirit. Send your Spirit, God. Pour out your power among us. Because we need the Spirit. We, your church needs a Spirit-filled you. Your spouse, your children need a Spirit-responsive, Spirit-filled you. Your neighbors and friends need you to be so spirit-enabled and empowered. Your workplace, your school needs a spirit-empowered you. And I'd like to pray for that right now with you as we close this sermon. Let's, let's come to our Father. Let's ask Him. Let's simply ask Him to invite the Spirit to come to fill us with His power. It's the simplest of prayers you've got to offer. Just come, Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads. And let me be clear, this is not something I can manipulate or engineer, and nor do I even want to do that. All we can do is ask, trusting God's promise, allowing God to do only what God can do. So let's come to God in prayer. And as we pray, I encourage you, perhaps just as a gesture of your receptivity, of your openness, simply to open your hands on your lap as a sign of your openness to God, of your desire for more of his spirit in your life. Father, our simple prayer is come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Friends, if you're ready, if you desire that, pray those words in your heart. Come, Holy Spirit. Come among us with your power and your grace. Jesus, you reminded us that your Father, our Father, is a good Father and he's ready to give us good things. We confess that we can come up with all sorts of reasons to think of why God can't or won't or shouldn't give us the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for the simple reminder that our Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we ask, come Holy Spirit, come in your power to fill us. We don't want to be satisfied with our past as a church, with what you've done among us. Today we choose not to do that. We ask for more. We ask for more of your power, more of your filling. We ask you for broken hearts for the lost. We ask you for forgiveness for forsaking our call to be witnesses. Jesus, break our hearts so that we might make your final words our first priority in all we do as a church. 
Send your spirit here on every individual, on us collectively as your people, as your church. We pray that your spirit will move in ways we just haven't seen before. May we not settle, God, for status quo, for a church that declines or diminishes or just hangs on. We pray for a church empowered with the spirit, growing in the spirit. Help us to wrestle with this truth, this promise that you have promised us, power. May we wrestle with this until we know it is true of us. God, hear our prayer. Lord, listen to your children praying. Amen.